You are all weirdos. Weird Welcome, all you weirdos, Krakoan refugees, and everyone who was a little bit confused about what happened in Ultimate Invasion Number 4. But that's not important now, because at least for now, we remain the mutant member of your Weird Science Podcast family. I am your host, Jason, broadcasting from the Wrong Turn Studio, high atop stately Weird Science Tower, and here with me once again is my man, Ruben. Ruben, how glad are you that we are not an Ultimate Invasion Podcast this week? <laughs> Extremely happy, yeah. I it's read not, it. I, yeah. I felt like it's a book for me, and I'm going to have to reread it. But <laughs> ooh, cell phone. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I did not follow what the hell happened it, beyond you know time travel stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those where I, I want to draw like a diagram, and there's some time travel, and the maker gets part of his head blasted away, and we kind of learn why. But some yeah. anyway. Uh, I, I know Jim talked about this last week in one of the Marvel podcasts. I haven't gotten to listen to that one yet. So, uh, Jim and whoever recorded that with Jim, I, I hope you did a good job because I, I need some help. But, again, that's not important. Now, we're here to talk about the mutants. We are here to talk about Jean Grey, number two, Ms. Marvel, the new mutant, number two, Realm of X, number two, and Invincible Iron Man, number ten. And after that, I'm going to mention another little something else that readers might want to know about that came out next. I'm going to leave that. We call, we call that a tease in the business, Ruben. Mm-hmm. There we go. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is Jean Grey, number two of four, Dead Reckoning, written by Louise Simonson, art by Bernard Chang, colors by Marcelo Maiolo, letters by Ariana Mayer, designed by Jay Bowen, just Jay Bowen. Now, the pattern of this miniseries has come clear now, right? Jean is dead. She likely won't be for very long, but she's dead now. And while she's dead, she has some time on her hands. There are some regrets, curiosities about other ways her life might have gone, making this essentially a Marvel what-if miniseries focused entirely on Jean Grey and taking place probably only within Jean's own mind, maybe the white-hot room, or maybe those are the same thing. Who the hell knows? Now, in the first issue, Jean's question was, and I'm not going to do a Jean Grey voice, uh, what if when we original five were sent back to our own time, I never wiped out our memories of the future? And that that didn't work out so well. I, I forget, was the entire universe ended by the Phoenix or just the planet Earth? Either way, not so bueno. Yeah. Uh, this time, wh- which left. one was it? I was going to say... <laughs> Yeah, a lot of stuff got ruined. It doesn't really matter, but I laughed because I was telling you, oh, I think this actually happened. And it was very clearly, no, this is just her. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's we're just doing like a, a simulation so. of some sorts. Yeah, which is sort of dumb to me. Like, if you're, you can, everybody thinks about their past, right? But like, do you ever like live out this whole, this would have happened and this would have happened and this would have happened? It's like, I don't believe this is really happening. Well, the pitch seems to be two ideas that were separate and then got squished together. So I think uh, uh, they wanted Simonson to do a a Jean Grey story that's kind of one of these retro stories about the past, like we've seen with Magneto and Storm and uh, I think Rogue. And Anyway, and and then they said, oh, we're also doing Fall of X and Jean's going to be dead for a while and we all expect she's going to come back. I think they took those two ideas and they kind of mushed them together. So... I think that may be why we have some of the strangeness going on here, because I don't think they were originally supposed to be both strands going on in the same story. That's my theory. I have no information to back that up. That is just what I get out of reading the book. Makes sense. So, so 
In this issue, Jean's question is, what if, instead of doing it myself, I let Wolverine pilot that malfunctioning space shuttle on that day that I became the Phoenix? Would that work out any better for Jean or the universe or the planet? Well, let's find out, but I would not bet the X-Mansion's mortgage on it. So, Gene thinks back to that famous story told by Chris Claremont and artist Dave Cockrum all the way back in 1976's X-Men number 100 and 101. Now, Ruben, did you buy those off the spinner rack back in the mid-70s? Not so much? No. I'm familiar familiar with this, right? When I always complain about Gene, one of my biggest pet peeves of her is that she doesn't seem to have grown past ever becoming the Phoenix. That's like the only thing anyone ever writes about her. And so... That is a problem with a lot of these ongoing big two comics. There's like some story that just sticks in the writer's mind so much they can't get past it. It's it's Jason and the crowbar. It's the same thing. Yep, exactly. So I'm a, I'm totally aware of this whole thing. I've read it. I've got it as a um, like a reprint in classic X Men. Mm-hmm. So it's not like an unfamiliar story, but at the same time sort of like the only story I know about Jean. It is. And like when they make the movies, it's kind of the only movie they make about Jean. Haven't they made the Dark Phoenix saga at least twice in the yeah. movies already? Yep. I, I haven't seen any of those, but I've heard about it. And, and as you mentioned, this story was retold in classic X-Men number eight, which added like a, a, a backup story also by Claremont that kind of gave more of the Phoenix's point of view and had more of a, like a modern understanding of what the Phoenix Force was. Because of course, this has been retconned eight ways from Sunday, but, you know, and even more since 1987. So the long and short of the story is the X-Men need to escape from a failing space station. But the good news is, hey, there's a space shuttle. The bad news is the shuttle have to go through the deadly radiation of a solar flare. The good news is there's a shielded room on the shuttle. The bad news is the shuttle's computer is damaged and the shuttle needs a pilot. The good news is we have a pilot, Dr. Corbeau. The bad news is the pilot would have to be outside the shielded room and Dr. Corbeau wouldn't even live long enough to get him halfway home. So the solution is, Jean telepathically absorbs Dr. Corbeau's piloting abilities. She says that her telekinetic powers will, quote, screen out the harmful radiation. Hmm. Scott tries to volunteer to do it instead, and Jean just telepathically knocks him the F out. No time for his nonsense. Mm-hmm. A Wolverine, who's quite new to the team at this time, like less than a year on the X-Men, he tries to volunteer instead, and Jean uses her mutant power of scolding him, and he just like backs off with his metaphorical tail between his legs. So here's where the change is. In this new version, Wolverine points out that he has this healing factor thing, and Jean has telepathy, two great tastes that taste great together. I mean, it's worth pointing out that back in 1976, issue 100, Wolverine's healing factor had not really been established in continuity, which is, you know, why he didn't bring it up. This time around, Jean goes into the protected compartment, Logan mm-hmm. takes the wheel or whatever it is you take to drive a space shuttle, uh, and they she shares a telepathic bond with him to tell him how to pilot the damn thing. And in doing so, she sees everything about his past, including all the retcons that had not even been a flick in any writer's imagination in 1976, right? Heck, Gene learns that Wolverine's name is Logan, which wasn't a thing in 76. Gene sees Logan's Weapon X days and what was done to him there. Gene even sees his growing feelings for her, setting up an early version of the Gene Scott Logan love trial that will play out in a way through the rest of the issue. So the shuttle crashes down to the ocean and everybody's okay, except, you know, where's Wolverine? So now we have a panel straight out of the one from the beginning of X-Men 101. Wolverine, not Gene, bursts up through the water and he is possessed by the Phoenix Force. 
Oh, boy. And I didn't quite get this, but for some reason, Phoenix causes bone claws to poke out all over Logan's body, making him look like Kobach never held from X-Men Red. Is I guess they just wanted to make it look something different than regular Phoenix. Is there yeah. any reason why you think that would happen? No. It, I guess Pretty it looks kind of cool. It makes me think of the Phoenix Five when in, in Avengers vs. X-Men when pretty much everybody got a piece of the Phoenix. And they all looked pretty cool. And this just looks kind of stupid. So oh, That's a story I haven't read yet. I'm aware of it. Short end read of the uh, stick. <clears throat> Did Wolverine get the Phoenix Force in that? No. No, okay. no so yeah. So this is like, his first time on panel as Phoenix Wolverine? As far as that, you know? that, that's probably the case, yeah. At that time in, in Avengers vs. X-Men, he, uh, Logan was very much on team, not mutant supremacy. And Cyclops was very much like... At the beginning of the whole, like, we've kowtowed to humanity too much. Mm-hmm. We need to, like, do something with this Phoenix power to bring back all the mutants. Oh, that I sound see. familiar? I knew there was that, <laughs> that whole part of Scott's character arc where he was he was kind of that Magneto-leaning guy. I didn't know yes. it was tied in with the Phoenix as well. Yes, yeah. Oh, boy. So, he, okay. get, he gets the Phoenix and so does Cyclops and a bunch of others. And the Avengers realize that the Phoenix is going to cause them to destroy Earth. So, they go after the X-Men. Phoenix always causes problems. Okay, so let's let's get through the rest of this book pretty quick. Uh, uh, Phoenix Logan flies off to take revenge on Weapon X, and Scott and Jean fly off to try to stop him. Logan gets his revenge by shooting bone spears through endless hordes of Weapon X goons, at which point something inside Logan realizes that he can't handle this power, and he begs for death. Hey, comics are fun, aren't they, kids? Uh, Jean wants to think of another way out, but Cyclops leaps into action, Optic blasting the guy who is, maybe coincidentally, his rival for Gene's affections. At this point, with Logan not quite dead, the Phoenix Force leaps from Logan into Scott. And now it's Scott's turn to beg for death. (laughs) And Wolverine gives it to him, snicking him from behind straight through his heart. Phoenix now leaps back into Logan and he self-destructs here? Or maybe he was already dying from the optic blast? What? What do you think happened here that made the comic <laughs> have to stop besides the page got ran out? Uh, yeah, I don't what what know. happened? I didn't get it. I don't it. know. He, he blows up because <laughs> that's the power that he's got? I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to say that he was still damaged from the optic blast and the power, whatever. He it Whatever happens, it's enough to realize that this what if is not working out so great. Yeah. She resets her mental holodeck and next stop is going to be Madeline Pryor and I'm guessing... Inferno, the the original Inferno. Yeah. So I thought this was a step down from the first issue. It, it doesn't help that I've never been a big fan of the Phoenix story, having yeah. come to X-Men comics when the concept had already been way overused, right? I do like the bit where Gene learns all the things about Wolverine, the ones that hadn't been written yet in 1976. That was fun. Uh, but the back and the ping pong of the Phoenix is just silly. Although the ending with you know, Scott and Logan both dead, and I think the Phoenix is gone. That may be actually an upgrade on what really happened, right? I mean, no Dark <laughs> Phoenix here. No genocide of the asparagus people, the Dabari. Yeah, yeah. So maybe maybe Jean should have done this. Yeah. I think there's an argument. It's pretty funny. But we don't know what's going to happen next. So maybe she just gets Dark Phoenix again anyway. Yeah. Uh, the art was mostly quite nice. As, as silly as the plot was of Phoenix hopping bodies, I, I really like the part when Phoenix takes hold of Scott and we get this one panel where like his whole eye shield explodes, I thought that looked really cool. I don't like Bernard Chang's regular standing around talking faces. I mean, Scott and Professor X early on look like complete dorks. When they're in the space shuttle, 
uh, Professor X looks like he's waiting in an elevator. Like he, they're all about to maybe die, and he's like, oh, "Got to check my watch. I got to get my, my my wheelchair greased. It's a whole thing. It's just the faces did not sell it. Uh, what what did you think of the the art in this book? I thought the art was okay. It it didn't really distract me, but. I'm with you that in general, I'm down on this issue. Now that I know that these you know, alternate reality things are just her thinking about, oh, if I'd done something different, maybe I wouldn't be dead at the hands of Orcus. This now, this series now to me is just Tales from the Dark Multiverse, but the Marvel version, Ooh. where they're just going to go through and yeah, give you what that's ifs. That's an unfortunate pull there, yeah. Yeah, which is, I don't know. I'm not sure who the audience is for for that type of a story. Like, what ifs are fun, but just what ifs that always end in failure. It's sort of, what's the point? Yeah, I think they're more fun if they illuminate something about a core character. I, I yeah. think that happened a little more last issue. Yeah. Where, where this one was just like, here's some, some crazy stuff. Oh, we'll take Phoenix and we'll make Phoenix go to Wolverine and that'll be kind of fun to happen. And there's no real, I didn't get any real emotional, mental clarity out of out of what happened yeah and i have to say even with the with the writer it just tells me this is sort of like a memory lane thing of gene gray but it doesn't make me think that anything they're referencing now is going to be important to her story when she returns beyond just everyone's going to bring up the phoenix again because that's all anyone ever knows what to do with this character yeah it's it's a writer who's not really part of the current uh, Ah. flock of stories stories have a flock right that's what you call a group of stories Mm-hmm. Sure, let's go with that. Uh, but but yeah, it's 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 Louise Simonson doing you know some interesting things with with the with the character, but it's not like this is leading to oh, I can see where this is going to change how mutant kind is going to move forward post Krakoa. Nothing like that. So uh, to wrap up, yeah, it's not nothing you should run up run out and, and necessarily buy if you're a Jean Grey fan, if you're a Louise Simonson fan. It's it's not awful. I'm going to give it a flat old six out of ten. Yeah, I think I liked it a little bit more. I'll go six five, but six five. Positive Peter today. Yeah, it's it's just. Uh, I guess if you're like really into these stories, you might really get something from seeing a different version of them. But sure. uh, for me, it was more just like I read it and I'm like, okay, yeah, I know everything I need to know about Jean Grey because I know what you're referencing, and that is all I got out of it. Okay, well, uh, speaking of some other characters that don't always get their time in the spotlight and may or may not be connected to Fall of X, let's move on to Ms. Marvel, The New Mutant Number 2, Hiding in Plain Sight. The Written most by, important book. The most <laughs> the important book in, in Fall of X. I want to say this before you go into your actual okay. details. Go for it. I do not understand why every single one of the Fall of X books has to reference this storyline, right? We've seen the university, we've seen Ms. Marvel mentioned. It's like mm. they got they definitely got a message from editorial to say like, you know, every writer pump up this series. Like let people know this is out there. And then every time I read it, I'm just like, why is this thing that's getting hyped other than they paid the actors? It's funny to because there are some definite intentional crossover things, you know, like Tony Stark appears, stuff like that. But then there's some places where you'd think it would cross over, and it, it really doesn't. So this issue is notable to me. Let me uh, finish the credits here. Uh, written by Iman Vellani and Sabir Pirzada. Art by Carlos Gomez and Adam Gorham. Colors by Eric Arseniega. Letters by Joe Caramagna. Designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So as I was saying, to me, this issue is notable for what's not in it. So, Ruben, what do you think I'm going to say is missing from this book? 
A nuclear warhead? A nuclear warhead, <laughs> right? Because over That's at Uncanny man. Avengers... It's in the other building. <laughs> over at Uncanny Avengers, we saw Captain Krakoa's Orcas goons, you know, hide a nuclear warhead ticking down from, was it 12 hours? It was not a, not a long period of time. Yeah. And, and I don't know, maybe the time scales don't quite line up. Maybe we'll see the warhead show up here in Ms. Marvel number three. But yeah, I was really hoping to see that that crossover because if it's going to be a unified story, I'm excited. But it's these two stories are happening at science fairs in Empire State University. They they should it's they a, should it's be a showing big up campus, man. It's a big campus. You can't expect Orcus so. to know what's going on in the other well, building. Maybe they have two campuses, like Johnson and Wales. <laughs> oh, that'd be but, funny, like Manhattan Branch and. Over in the Bronx, oh yeah. yeah. The Bronx. If, you, if your SAT scores aren't quite good enough, you got to go over to the Bronx. Okay. Oh, no offense that's to the new, Bronx. That's my new except, except the Yankees are there, so yes, some offense to the Bronx. Uh, so, uh, we start off with another damn dream sequence. Yeah. At least this one is short, right? Just one page. Yeah, I was about to get angry when I read this. I was like, <laughs> no, you're not doing this to me again. Another, it's going like, to be every issue, isn't it? Pages. If you do the yeah. first two issues, there's four issues, it's it's a pattern. We're going to get dream sequence at the start of every issue, I think. But it was learned, a page. I, I was okay with it. It was fine. It was all right. It was, it was better. Was happy to turn the page and, and see what she was awake again. But what we yeah. learned from the dream sequence is that the only important bit from each dream sequence is what happens last. That Silver Surfer Doctor Strange mashup who, uh, like Lionel Richie, just says hello. Now, it turns out that this character is out of a fan comic that Kamala herself drew some years previous, which Bruno yeah. thinks is a sign. Yeah, so I want to I wanna go on record here because... I was, my morality was challenged on the last. <laughs> the She's last too young we, for you, Ruben. Yes. Well, no, I think I said it was fine for Bruno to be over in her room <laughs> playing video games late. It was, uh-huh. It's not fine for Bruno to spend the night in the, uh, in the dorm room with her. I, that's where I draw the line. So this time I was like, okay, it's a little weird. Like, even for me. It is weird. Cause I mean, if you doze off, you doze off, but now when it's full on morning, they're yes. both in the same bed under the same covers. Uh, they're both still clutching their game controllers like they were snuggling with them all night, yes. which is weird. But just to remind us, they were playing video games. Yes. But her roommate, uh, totally cool with this. Uh, yes. the, the, the coolest, easiest going roommate ever who kind of has one of the worst roommates ever. Yes. The other thing I'm going to say, and this is the stuff that um, I picked up on because I don't care so much about the story. Mm-hmm. So we see her in like a we see Miss Marvel Kamala in a nightgown and then later she changes right and we sure. see Bruno in this this blue hoodie and like I guess tank top he's wearing the same damn thing later in the in the issue well so he was not on sleeping over he didn't bring a change not, of clothes he did not shower he is he is pretty rank I'm assuming at this point what is Bruno's deal currently does he have a job does he go to school. <laughs> But she just seems to have nothing he's else homeless. to do. He sleeps in Kamala's room, apparently. Maybe this, this is a summer program she's at, right? So maybe he's <laughs> off for the summer and he's kind of at loose ends. Yeah. Let's go with that. So, meanwhile, generic Orcus middle manager number 17B, uh, her name is Nikita Gaiha. That doesn't really matter. Well, she has the gray hair and the black hair. That That's her exciting personality trait. That's her thing. Yeah. Uh, she's in trouble with her boss, Omega Sentinel, for not having already found and captured Ms. Marvel. I know this is comics, and, you know, Superman puts on the glasses and nobody recognizes him, but there are tons of pictures of Ms. Marvel, and Kamala Khan living right there on campus kind of stretches 
credibility to say, oh, we, we can't find it. Mm -hmm. Especially if you have mutant scanning technology and she's a mutant now. Well, we get to like how she gets infected with the Trojan horse thing and everyone seems to be unmasked at that scene. And again, the Orcus people don't seem to have figured out who's who, which really made me laugh. They're, they're not the brightest. <laughs> so back on campus is a, another super generic anti-mutant hate and fear fest going on. Yes. It's crazy how I, I know we're supposed to buy that. Yes, Orcus did their thing at the gala. And now everybody in the whole darn world hates mutants. Yes. I, a little more subtlety here would be welcome. There is there's one girl here with a pro mutant sign, but she runs off after very nearly getting her ass beat. It's, yeah, it's, it's really a, wow. It's a little extreme. I mean, they should have had a handful of people, right? I could. This would be more believable to me if it was like the majority of people are anti mutant, but there's like a twenty five percent resistance, right? Yeah, like that one would take versus more page 50. space, and they don't want to yeah. use that page space. Yeah, they just didn't want to draw the pictures, but it. It seems weird. It's like 99.9% of these students hate mutants. Yeah, I'd, I'd enjoy it if in, in one book there was like a group of humans who kind of saw through Orcus's propaganda and were secretly something like that. But yes, we already have a lot of books. Uh, Kamala does nothing to help out this girl. She says she thinks, oh, if I use my powers, it'll only make the mob angrier, which yeah. I don't know if this mob can get all that much angrier. They're, they're, they're pretty much full on angry. Yes. So Kamala then talks to Sink via radio, and he tells her some mumbo jumbo about Orcus using that Chitari from last issue to develop, quote, radio telepathy. I don't know what that is or why it's important, but the main point <laughs> of this conversation is so that Orcus can notice there's some radio communication anomalous frequencies and send a swarm of drones after the source of those frequencies, which is Kamala Khan. Now, Kamala puts on her mutant Ms. Marvel outfit to fight the drones in what, to me, is clearly the best scene of the issue. The drones Voltron themselves together to form a giant-ish robot, which is very silly because it negates all the drones' advantages, right? <laughs> They they have all this maneuverability. They can strike from multiple places at once, but instead they <laughs> stick together and make one big target. Yes, humanoid target. That's I'm, I'm no drone pilot, but I don't think that's I don't think that's why drones are helpful, so they can glom together. <laughs> but you know, this is a Ms. Marvel book, and that's the right kind of silliness for a Ms. Marvel book. So yeah. I'm totally. Does okay. she have like Reed Richards type powers? I always thought that wasn't the case. So when I saw her like wrapping around the drone, I was like, that's kind of weird. I thought I she just made the, her body parts bigger, but... I don't know the difference, but it is it is pretty much Reed Richards. Okay. Which I think is why in the movies they want to change it, because they're bringing in the actual Reed Richards, and it would just be redundant. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, so I liked when she did the make your body a pillowcase and, and swoop up all the drones thing. I, thought that I was mean, it looked fun. cool. I, don't yeah. get me wrong, I just was curious, because I don't know much about this character, and I was like, you just look like Mr. Fantastic, but... So we do get to see Kamala use her inhuman stretching powers, but we still don't see any mutant powers. That's got to happen sometime in this miniseries, right? I'm starting to think maybe they're just not going to give her mutant powers. <laughs> are they? What, what do you think is going to happen? Are we going to get a power reveal like in the last issue? I feel like, yeah, this is building up to that. It's probably going to be the last one so that the speculators have to keep buying the issues all the way to the end. To get that, that if, big reveal. It's either going to happen here or it'll be in the big event that's coming up. I could see that being like one of the ooh wow moments. Mm, maybe in, in the uh, in the Fothox Rocks Pops. Yes, I didn't event? want to say it. <laughs> could be. I would think they'd want her to be more on her own than be part of the big mutant thing, but 
Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. So Kamala doesn't seem to need rescued here, but Tony uh, Tony Stark, Iron Man, shows up to rescue her anyway, and he's in his stealth, I think the model nil suit, is that what we're calling it? Mm-hmm. Now, this suit is popping up in a surprising number of books lately. It's even in that nonsense contest of Chaos Avengers annual this week. Did you read that one? No, I'm waiting for all of Good. the issues to... <laughs> Good. It's, it's nothing. Okay. It is nothing. I was going to say, I was waiting for all the issues to show up on oh, Infinite, so, and then so I was going to... the ending, though. It's I was going to kind of... So I didn't want to buy the issues that I don't have, but I've got the annuals, right, for a few of the series I am collecting. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, once they hit Infinite, I will... Or is that DC? What's the Unlimited? Once they hit Unlimited, I will right. read, you know, I will start reading this whole thing, but you're telling me can, it's just a whole skip. Can I give away the ending? Uh, yeah, I don't really so care. You know how at one point they decided that all the Infinity Stones are now people? Uh, no, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, that was that's that's the thing. Now, I believe that all the Infinity Stones or gems, I've heard they call them in the comics, they, they became into people. So people are the Infinity Gem. Okay. Uh, now the Darkhold, that magic book. Yeah, the tome. Now, now that's a dude. <laughs> there you go. So uh, spoilers everything, is a, everything is a anthropomorphic thing now. Great. That's so, yeah. So anyway, so that's that concept of chaos. But here in Ms. Marvel, uh, Tony flies the two of them off to the Hellfire Club to chat with his new better half, Emma. Now, one weird thing here is that Emma looks like Emma, not Hazel. Yeah. And there's one like shoehorned in bit of dialogue where she tells Kamala, oh, I'm telepathically making you see the real me. Yeah, I kind of like that because I was like, I immediately reacted to it. I was like, "What?" I I think that seems like it was put in at the end when someone realized. But also, <laughs> they drew if, the art, and then somebody was like, like oh, oh, "Wait shit. a second, right?" right. Should this because, be Hazel? Because if she's dressed as as <laughs> Hazel, what is she always wearing on her finger? Oh yeah, the wedding band, the ring yeah. that prevents her from using her psychic powers. And if she takes off the ring, she'll be noticed by the, the the sentinels so i don't think this quite works i think this was a mistake they tried the paper roll. interesting so the, the two ladies have a, a well, emma points out something good she points out hey kamala you shouldn't be wearing your hey i'm a mutant outfit when you're on a stealth mission for the mutant so i'm glad yeah. someone on panel just says that. that yeah uh and then there's kind of this kind of cringy talk between her and kamala they have a panel where kamala declares herself a Pakistani American inhuman mutant and says, "I'm living proof we can all coexist." Yeah, which I think it seems to be made for the you know made for the twitters and the reddits, and we'll put that panel around. But I thought that conversation was was kind of lame. Can we quickly talk about the Iron Man thing too? Sure, please. Appeared? So after Kamala and, and Tony beat the Voltron unit, mm-hmm. why does he take off his stealth uniform? <laughs> if he's That's trying a good to, question. if he's trying to maintain his whole like, oh, Iron Man's retired. <laughs> yeah, and this then he puts really it right back reveal. on to fly them off to the mansion. It's yeah, it's for us, right? It's for the readers, so we so can you know see who oh, he is. This, this weird yeah. looking Iron Man suit is actually Tony. Yeah, I think. But I'm thinking like Tony Stark standing here talking to Miss Marvel in her X Men outfit. Seems like some people would notice that, but right, these drones have cameras. I'm sure they're all, they look all broken now, but maybe one of the cameras is still working a little bit. Yeah. Or there's probably other Orcus is running this campus. They've got to have cameras everywhere. Yeah, and we do see that one little tiny mini drone flies out of the pile of broken drones and goes goes right into Kamala's hair. Yeah. And the sound effect is TCK tick. 
yeah. which I didn't like because it reminded me of when I had an actual tick in my hair <laughs> and it kind of made my skin crawl. But maybe I they could have shown a different sound. So when I was reading it, I was like, oh, well, they took a picture, so now they know who Kamala is and now they know who Tony is associated with her, right? But and we see a little thing go whirr yeah. and then a little Later they say it line. like went into yeah. her skin. Looks pretty big. I'm pretty sure you would notice something that size <laughs> going into your scalp. But I'm, I'm glad they not. actually drew it. I didn't notice it at first. And I was like, oh, that didn't happen. I went back to, oh, yeah. there it is. It's on panel. Okay, I'll, I'll give you credit for that. Yeah. But it's pretty big. I mean, if you look at when it like detaches from the from the Voltron thing, it's about the size of yeah, like a, maybe a dime. Yeah, yeah. Show again, that's, that's your for head. our that benefit as readers, so well. we can see that it happened. Yeah. Okay. So, final scene of the silly book. Back in the dorm, Bruno has set up a system to quote monitor Kamala's brain waves while she sleeps. I do not know what good this is supposed to do. Oh. The graph is wiggling more now, therefore, what? I don't, I don't get it. What, yeah. what is this supposed to do? What did you get out of this? <laughs> well, we know he's he's intended to help her, intending to help her talk to her Doctor Strange Silver Surfer amalgam, but how any of this would help you achieve that, I don't know. I don't get it. I also it. don't know why the Orcus people are, like, waiting for her to sleep. Like, the drone only activates when she's asleep. I don't, I don't get that either. Yeah, I or don't care. We get these couple little panels where they mention the drone, and uh, what's her name? The new mental manager lady says it's already pierced her scalp, so yeah. it is burrowing in again, like a tick. Which again, ugh, yuck. And it could look into your dreams. Like, what are they trying to accomplish with this? I thought it would just be like, oh, it's a camera, or like a tracker or something, but super weird. Right. So they should know by now if it's a tracker, exactly what Dormer went back to, so they know Ms. Marvel's secret identity. Yes. It's it's complete should be completely clear. Yes, but, it should not be unclear okay. at this point. So her roommate is Michelle, who is way too happy to be kicked out of her own dorm room for the night. It's <laughs> it's seven oh one PM exactly. Yeah. She's already got her pillow and a sleep mask. I don't know, she's off to like sleep in a stairwell or something. <laughs> I don't. Where is she going? She's super happy. My my. What, I, what I'm hoping is here is that Michelle is a double agent. Yeah. Michelle turns out to be working with a supervillain. To explain, of Orcus, explain this, yeah. Something to explain this behavior because something's not right with that girl. I don't know. Yeah, I got Maybe? into problems with my roommates when I was a college kid, and I was never happy like this. <laughs> Michelle is going to get walked all over. She needs to stand up for herself. Yes. Yeah. You gotta you gotta tell your roommates to stop being jerks to you. <laughs> gotta draw the line somewhere. Yes. So Kamala finally falls asleep after many more video games and goes right into that same dream. Uh this time she talks to Dr. Surfer and ends up riding on his magic board. That is not a euphemism. And uh, <laughs> that's where the story ends. There was uh yeah. That's that's where it stops. And not much more to say yeah. there. This is an X book that has been to me made worse by having Ms. Marvel in it and a Ms. Marvel book that's made worse by forcing it to be an X book. So yeah. I don't really get why this book is what it is or who it's for. There are bits here that are okay, like that drone fight, uh, but not a whole lot. And there's kind of a lot of boring stuff in between. Yeah. Did you enjoy I, I this just, any more than I did? Yeah, I like this better than the last issue. Maybe just oh, really? because of the one-page dream sequence. <laughs> I don't think this is a good story, but it's so goofy and bad that I had fun with it. Whereas the first time I was just like, this is boring and stupid. But now I'm just like rolling my eyes at the idiocy of this. 
certainly Damn. makes Omega Sentinel not exciting. I to such a like intriguing just like character design. I was like, ooh, who's that intriguing character? character? Design, and we got that really cool reveal where she's a time traveler from a different timeline. Yeah, yep. and now, now she's, she's just super boring. generic robot lady who's threatening her subordinate. So good news is we are halfway through this miniseries. It's only two issues left, and we're we're gonna read them. We're gonna talk about them. Maybe not so extensively, depending on what happens each week, although I probably would have said it this week, and I don't want to check the timer and find out how long we've been talking about friggin' Ms. Marvel. But uh, yeah, we're going to finish it up. I'm going to give this book a 5.8 out of 10. Wow. Positive, Peter. I'm, I'm a six. All the way up like- to six. <laughs> I, I, I just raised mine. I had written down 5.5, five, so you talked yeah. me into it being 5.8, so okay, good. that's a good influence. Yeah, I'm glad. It. Yeah, I, I was at least... Um, it made me laugh a couple times at how goofy it is, but uh, laughing is good. We all need a couple laughs. It's not a good story, certainly not intriguing. And again, like I said, I have no idea why all the titles will keep pointing to this. Usually, when they do that, it's like that's because the book has some really good stuff in it, right? Well, Marvel knows they they want Ms. Marvel to really get big. They think they have yeah. something in the character. She's going to be in the MCU stuff, so they're trying to make her break out, and that, that's probably why there was a. A diktat go down and say, hey, everybody hype up this book. Oh, well. So let's see if we can get some more laughs out of our next book, which is Realm of X, number two of four, Lost Lamb, written by Torin Gronbeck, art by Diogenes Neves, colors by Rain Berido, letters by Clayton Cowles, designed by both Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. Now, uh, Ruben, I don't think you are with us when I discussed this, the first issue here. Is that no? Am I you always correctly? forget that I was around for all these things. All these. No, we things. talked about it. We talked we about did. it. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm part of. I, maybe I'm like the maker in uh, the Ultimate Invasion, and part of my brain ha, ha, was blown away well, I don't by. Have a, I don't have a camera to confirm or deny that, so I, I buy it. <laughs> you, you can't see the the giant silver helmet extending back two feet beyond my cranium. <laughs> That's the reveal, folks. I am the maker. So, attentive listeners, uh, more attentive than I am, uh, may remember that I was a big fan of about half of issue number one. Oh, of course, I remember because I was talking about how it's uh, Justice League Odyssey. Yes. We, we talked about that, of course. Yeah, yeah. Now, the half of the issue that I liked was all about young Curse gallivanting around Vanaheim and getting herself into and out of shenanigans. Soap bubbles and wolves, trolls turned into stone, uh, feathers knocked off at angry birds. Good time was had by all. Uh, and she even showed us her more tender side, saving a boy from drowning, even when she knew using her power like that hurts herself. Now, this issue has kind of none of that. Curse is still here, but she's all subdued and sad. And a sad curse is almost as bad as, as no curse at all. But I don't know uh, why they're drawing her this way now, but she looks like Togepi from Pokemon. <laughs> Hardcore. For that. I, I Hardcore. Like, that. I can't stop thinking that this is just Togepi. Which is Togepi. annoying. I'll have to yes. Google that when we're done here. Yeah, I'm an embarrassed, embarrassed to say that I have played many Pokemon games. What? Oh, Let me see if I get the vocabulary right. What? What kind of of Pokemon is Togepi? Aren't there like this kind? Uh, and that what's, kind? The, what's the? Yeah, are you testing me? The poisons oh, and the fire. There's people and- like yeah. There's people like <laughs> Batman Beyond Mark who actually know this stuff hardcore. Um, it's a fairy's <laughs> flying, I think. A fairy flying that. Pokemon. Well, we'll, we'll see. Somebody, somebody Mark, tell me. You can get, get it right. right if he gets it wrong. Yeah. Okay. So, meanwhile, back in this book, uh, so just to recap, a group of lady mutants, Magic, Mirage, Typhoid Mary, Dust, Marrow, and Curse, they went through a portal at the Hellfire Gala 
wound up together in Vanaheim. The adults joined up with a group of Vanir, where they learned of a prophecy involving all of them, except magic. That's where the Justice League Odyssey connection comes in. Now, Curse, on her own, had that aforementioned set of adventures before she gets picked up by the Omniversal Majestrix, Opal Luna Saturnine, who wants to make use of Curse's power for her own purposes. Uh, one more probably salient fact, Magic has had her portal-making mutant power nerfed by an injection uh, from Orcus, from Dr. Stasis. Now, in this issue, it seems like her magical spell-casting abilities are being blocked as well. Is that part of the same deal with Orcus, or is that something separate? Do you think we're supposed to know yet, or is that a mystery? I think they suggest in the storyline that it is more to do with where they are and less Hmm. to do with some sort of spell on her. That's a weird coincidence that both her ability sets are like taken out separately. Yeah. But that's that's what needs to happen for the story to happen. It seems like this Vanaheim realm is somehow cut off from magical sources. Hmm. I'm not a big uh, you know, Vanaheim fan. I don't I don't really know their history so much, but maybe. I don't either. And and that's the I mean, I get interested in realm building stuff, so I've been like, oh this is kinda cool. They're prophetic people that have voluntarily gone barbaric to I don't know what <laughs> maintain their society somehow. But yeah, it's almost like they gave up the power of the One Ring. They said, oh, we have all this power, but it's causing problems. We're just going to push it aside and, and say, yeah, no thanks. Yeah. So to start off this issue, Curse tells Saturnine the story of the gala from her own point of view. Maybe Curse is an unreliable narrator because it doesn't really match up with what we've seen previously. Yes. Specifically in the gala issue, as Curse is being dragged through the portal by magic, she tries to curse Professor X. Yes. Her exact quote is, damn you, Charles, curse you, you bald piece of, and that's where she gets cut off. And when, yes. when she does a curse, her the text in the bubbles change. You know that it's not just her talking, it's a curse. Yeah. So in this issue, she claims that as she went through the portal, she said, let's go somewhere, but not with Charles. Now, the implication is that she now feels guilty, thinking her curse could be responsible for this crew being stuck in Vanaheim. Interesting. Now, I think that's probably better. You're giving them a lot more credit than I did. I just thought that they were retconning that scene to try to say like, oh, that's how they ended up here. You mean by giving credit with the unreliable narrator? Yeah, exactly. I just think it was like disconnected between the writers. Or that they were saying that like- It's so specific that we saw this same panel of being carried and making a curse happen. And it's we were shown it and now it's different. And it's not that long ago, so- I, I, I just thought maybe this on. was like five minutes later, right? She she swears off Charles and then says the same, this next thing. So we, if we try to make this work, as she's saying the not with Charles, it's uh, magic kind of ahead of her by a foot or so as she's being carried behind. She's just starting to go through the portal. Yeah. And then in the gala issue, the damn you, Charles, curse you is as curse goes through the portal. So maybe we could say she's speaking really fast. And she says yeah. both things. Yeah, that's. I think it's a stretch, but that's probably the only way to to no prize and make it make it all hang together. It would be very. I, I, I would give them some props if this was, you know, very cleverly showing that she's not a trustworthy narrator. And she is a little kid, and she's having a rough time. But it's a very specific thing to make up, and I don't think she's intentionally deceiving Saturnine. I don't think she has that in but she her can't right be honest now. With herself, I mean, that gives Maybe. some depth that I have not ascribed. This. I, I'm trying. I'm trying to find something good here. It's not my yeah. favorite book, but 
But the point is that Torin Gronbeck wants Curse to feel guilty, and this is what she's going to feel guilty about. So let's stick with, with Curse for now, because I like her. It, it seems that she has the full run of this castle that Saturnine has claimed for herself. Now, do we know why Saturnine is here? Did something no. happen to her in those teeny Howard Betsy Britain books that I don't know about? That's Yeah, that's what I was wondering, and I was not going to go back and find out. But oh, hell no. S- somebody <laughs> just tell us, because I the last I remember is she was upset about um, the other Captain Britain, the one that everyone knows, not being but into her anymore. Brother, right. Yeah, and so there, she had done the whole... Brian? Yeah, maybe that's it. Brian Braddock? Anyways. Um, yeah, that whole Exosurge was like her scheme to try to connect with him, right? Yeah, and then there were there were several other miniseries about Betsy. So if things happened with, with uh, Saturnine in there, listeners, please somebody get at us. Tell us what we're missing. Tell us why we're idiots. But we don't know why Saturnine is here. Maybe it's a mystery. Maybe it's clear to everybody yeah. else, but we don't maybe know. Maybe it's just Saturnine. She does whatever the hell she wants. No sense or reason behind any of it. Yeah, so Saturnine is after some ancient power source here, which I think must be the bit that the veneer gave up, the, the one ring equivalent they, they gave up. And yeah. So she's trying to trick Curse into using that Curse ability to bring back the power source is what I get here. Yes. But the way Curse's Curses work, using that ability to do something that's nice for someone, that helps someone, will bring this huge rebound of pain onto herself. And for something this big, It'll probably kill her and kill her again. She's already been dead at least once. And Saturnine also has this other captive, a prophetess named Joanna Thornwood. Now, where is Joanna from? Because her name, she's not a veneer. She's not from this world. It's like calling her, you know, Susan Smith. And she does not fit in. Interesting. I'm not sure what part she's going to play in the outcome of the story, but it feels like she's being set up to be something kind of big, right? I think you're going to have to go back and read those, those books. (laughs) <laughs> you know, listeners, I love you guys, but there, I'll, I'll do anything for you, but I won't do that. <laughs> so on the other side of the story, the adult mutants are mostly doing a lot of bickering and, and unsubtly telling magic just what a useless piece of crap she is. Right? Yes. It's no subtlety here. Uh, and Typhoid Mary, a.k.a. Mrs. Wilson Fisk, is taking longsword lessons from a handsome warrior named Vonos. And by taking longsword lessons, I mean flirting with. And by flirting with, I mean straddling. My goodness, she is all over this dude. Yeah. I mean, they're villains, right? So it didn't totally shock me, but also sort of shocked me. I was like, I thought you guys were happily married. (laughs) Now, maybe this is the kind of thing that happens on Krakoa, but you're not on (laughs) Krakoa anymore. And I'm pretty sure that ex-Mayor Fisk would not approve. Well, no, whatever happens in other worlds stays in other world, right? (laughs) That's their tagline. I, I, it's on the billboards, right? In in uh, in Vanaheim, maybe in Vanaheim, because they're in Vanaheim. They're not in okay. other worlds. Again, I okay. don't really know where other world overlaps with other realms, but they're in Vanaheim. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the other main bit of action here is that the grownups have spent X weeks, maybe ten weeks, who knows, looking for Curse and not finding her. So they've been here a while. They've determined the only place she could be is the only place they haven't been able to go look in in Saturnine's castle. Which, you know, hey, hey, good guess. Now, the ladies, minus magic, who's who's useless, remember? They sneak into the castle and immediately fall prey to a spell that would have been easily identified by their missing pal magic. Oh, well. Uh, they're in danger, and Miss Magic, feeling so sad and so useless, decides to leave them notes and then run away from home with her bindle over her shoulder. Uh, and, and that's the issue. It's It's not a good issue. The characters are not acting at all like themselves. They're not fun to spend time with. 
There's no connection to the larger events of Fall of X other than kind of how they got here, and even that's been retconned already. I just don't have any particular reason to care about this story. Nothing's pulling me and making me want to want to see what happens next. In a weird way, this is the exact same story we're getting in Immortal X-Men, except that's more intriguing because the character dynamics are are handled better. Yeah, that's a good point. They're, They're stuck in this weird realm together, and they need to figure out how to get out of it. But yeah, the characters there are so much more sharply drawn and... Yeah, I want to see what's what's going on next there in the desert. We're here. It's like, oh, they're just going to kind of wander around a bit. So uh, kind of like with Ms. Marvel uh, listeners, we're going to keep doing this. We're halfway through. We might as well keep on going. I'm going to try to keep the next reviews a little shorter unless something really, really big happens. But if anything big happens, you'll certainly hear about it here. Yeah. Now, for me, Realm of X is going to get one of the lower scores I've ever given out on this podcast. I'm going <laughs> to give it a four and a half out of ten. So oh positive Peter Rubin. Yeah. What are you going to do with this? Yeah. I didn't hate it. Um, I was, I'm just at a six. So we have a big gap on that one. I thought it was okay. It, again, maybe I'm just more into finding out about these Vanaheim people. What's Probably. going on with them? Also, I think I've got a little bit of a bad attitude because I really liked the curse bits last issue and, and all that great fun we had last issue with her. It's just totally ripped away. And I, I missed that. Yeah. I mean, you could certainly skip this. There's nothing that's happening in this that feels necessary and even <laughs> the slightest, right? Even if you had read the gala and were like, mm-hmm. I need to know everything that happens from the gala, you could kind of just pretend that this group is with the people in Immortal. Even if you're a big fan of one of these characters, maybe you're you know, a big longtime Marrow fan who hasn't seen her much lately, yeah. she doesn't really get to do a whole lot here. And not like she's a... Yeah, it's 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 a... You'd think it would be a, a good opportunity to see these characters, but I don't think they're being used very well. I like oh, well. Um, Dust. She's kind of cool. She's kind of cool. I We don't see her do a whole lot. Yeah. I think she was way cooler in like X-Men Red than mm-hmm. she is in this book, right? Mm-hmm. And when she did the whole terraforming of Mars thing, she looked, wow, she has some really cool powers and yeah. a cool personality. Yeah. Doesn't really translate here. Well, okay. So that's three not so great books in a row to lead off the podcast. <laughs> Will We Be Saved by the Fourth, which is Invincible Iron Man number 10, which is not even technically a Fall of X book, except it's way more a Fall of X book than anything we've read so far. Yeah, I was going to say, this is this is there's, important. There's no Fall of X logo on the cover, but it's Fall of X. So it is, of course, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Juan Fergari, colors by Brian Valenza, letters by Joe Caramagna, and designed by nobody. Nobody at all designed this book. Now, as a landmark wedding issue, this book is like 30 pages long, is uh, five bucks. And this cover, as you might remember, stirred up a little bit of controversy when it was initially solicited because you can see a tiny little Ms. Marvel in the background perched on the wasp's embiggened shoulder. And she was supposed to be dead at the time. So people got all up in arms about, oh, Marvel is revealing that uh, Ms. Marvel's coming back. And yeah. Now, first of all, we all knew Ms. Marvel was coming back. So not a real big spoiler. And also, it's the cover. And Marvel covers don't mean anything. The no. cover of this connects with the cover of X-Men 26, I think it is, and shows all these Avengers and X-Men at this big church wedding. That didn't happen. happens. Yeah. It's just a cover. Don't don't take the covers too seriously. It's, it's a kind of cool looking cover. But it's Hulkling it's, it's have bat wings? Say that again? Is Hulkling like, uh, I guess he is a, was it Skrull? Yeah, just the, yeah, the he can do whatever he wants. And yeah, the bat wings he, in the back like really weirded me out. Where it's him, Hulkling, and 
Wigan, and I'm like, who's that? And I'm like, oh, I yeah, guess he couldn't Hulkling. see behind all these other giant characters, so he he picked up his uh, his guy there, and they're they're flying up higher. And the Nova also weirds me out on the cover because it's like super young kid Nova. I'm like, that's not Rich Rider. <laughs> this and the scale of the various characters is maybe a little bit off, but you want to see who all they all, all they all are, so that's yeah, fine. That's it's true. Right. You've it's, got it's, it's, it's <laughs> you've got Falcon Cap. Who's like taller than Thor? <laughs> Dude got tall. <laughs> and sure, Wasp can change. Well, I don't even know who it is. It's, it's a kind yeah. of cool cover, but it doesn't mean anything. So yeah. this issue does retread some ground already seen from Emma's point of view, and yet was X Men twenty six, also written by Duggan. But yeah. Iron Man ten progresses the story further, and even the bits that are reruns get some more some more explanation. Yeah. I want to say before we go into this, this one I really liked. I thought this was a cool issue. So, yeah, this this is the book of the week, even though it's not really a fall of X book. Yeah, we had. Fortunately, little- I read this first, and I was like, "Oh, this is going to be a good week," and then <laughs> everything else was downhill. We, we had our, our little vote on the Slack, and Matt Razor, uh, who has been on this podcast, he voted for Jean Grey number two as the book of the week. But the rest of us all seem to think that Invincible Iron Man is the best. So, so Matt. I don't know if you didn't like Invincible Iron Man, you didn't read it, or somehow you're, you're a really big Jean Grey head. Let, let us know what you saw in Jean Grey that we did. So this issue starts off with a phone call between James Rhodey Rhodes, who's in prison, awaiting trial for murder he didn't commit, and Tony Stark, new black king of the Hellfire Club, the guy who got Rhodey into this mess. Now, which one of them placed the call? It was neither. Rhodey is handed a contraband cell phone by a guard, and Tony's brought a phone by a Hellfire waiter. It's a setup. Fei Long, the red-skinned Orcus-affiliated bad guy, has hired some other prisoners to murder Rhodey to death, and he wants Tony to listen in while it happens, while Fei Long, also a Hellfire club member, watches Tony. So there's a weird little chain of nastiness going on. Yeah. Not a great guy, this Fei Long. No, he's horrible. I was like, that's a terrible thing to do. That's, that's pretty awful. And I felt now, really bad at that time. I was like, oh no, Rhodey. Poor Rhodey. Now, fortunately, Tony suspected something like this might happen, and in a flashback, we see he previously made a deal with Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. the Kingpin, a.k.a. the new white king of the Hellfire Club, a.k.a. the guy whose wife is messing around in Vanaheim, uh, to provide some in-prison protection for Rhodey. Stark is clearly going to have to return that favor someday, and it's going to be a doozy. uh, The narration here is, if people don't remember back at the beginning of this series, Tony Stark is writing his autobiography from some time in the future. So the narration boxes are him thinking back. And he hints that, yeah, if you've read to the end, you know what the favor is. And of course, we don't, but it makes me wonder what kind of favors is going to be. Yeah, I thought this was great because you're so happy with the protection being there, right? And Phelan getting stumped, but there's like sense of dread as to like, man, don't make deals with Wilson Fisk. It, and it makes you know it's Fisk not going to be good into you know the scary bad guy again, the scary badass. Which you know he kind of got beat up at the end of uh, not even at the end, but at in the Devil's Reign section, he kind of went off with his wife to kind of just kind of you know lick his wounds, as they might say. So to see him, you know, still being a, a scheming kingpin is good to see. So the protection uh, Tony got from Fisk turns out to be these two dudes, Arthur Parks, the living laser, and Flint Marco, the living sandbox. Now, Ruben, have you read all the issues in this series, even the ones before we started to cross into mutant territory? Yes, I have, yeah. So you'll remember in issue two, the living laser had been deceived by a then unknown baddie, who we now know as Phalong. He was tricked into attacking Tony, and Ironheart, who now has all the Mandarin's rings, for some reason, 
She stopped him <laughs> so that explanations could be made. And then uh, Living Laser said that when you figure out who this guy is who tricked me, I want to be in on the revenge. Now, that connection isn't really made explicitly in this issue. We're told that Arthur, that's Living Laser, was just paid a bunch of money by Fish to get himself arrested. Now, I guess we're not supposed to worry too much about how Fisk, I guess, pulled the strings to get Arthur into the same exact prison in Texas as Rhodey. Yeah, that doesn't bug me so much. No, and I'm I, again not it's a big comics, deal. It's and comics. I'm okay with that. And yeah, but reality is, you're not going to process like a legal yeah, and <laughs> situation this quickly. A waiting trial supposed to be in like a jail, which is different yeah. from a prison. Yeah. We're in the Marvel Universe. You're arrested. You all get sent to the same bad guy prison, superhero and prison. You're processed I, I, I'm very quickly. Yeah. Thinking too hard here. Oh, and uh, yeah, Arthur is wearing a power inhibitor, so he can't go all lasery, but he's still just a pretty decent badass all on his own, just, you know, breaking people's wrists. And Flint Marco isn't a prisoner. He just bursts out of the ground as a giant fist, kicks all sorts of ass, and then disappears again. None of the guards even seem to notice, which is funny. Some combination of Phalong bribes and Fisk bribes, and the guards are like, uh, this is a weird prison. Stuff happens. I, I'm not even going to, I'm going to pretend I don't even see it, which is, is fine. And Rhodey is safer now, and that's the last we see him in this issue. But it, it's good to check in with Rhodey and, and see what he's up to. I thought the Sandman thing was particularly cool. Living Laser was less cool. I'm like, okay, it's just a guy who's like yeah, acting was- tough. I was happy when I realized, oh, yeah, we've seen him earlier in this series. So it is it is kind of cool to see him come back. Because I had to look up who the heck is this living laser, and I checked the appearances, and I went, oh, yeah, that, that, issue, that issue you read, he was there. Yeah. So the rest One of this issue- One guy is a giant, badass Sandman kicking, like, eight guys' butts at <laughs> once, and the other guy is just a middle-aged white guy mm-hmm. who's beating up on the guy that's already been beat up. Well, Arthur is going to be uh, Rhodey's roommate or cellmate, so he gets to yeah. kind of stick around the whole time. So he has a purpose. I think that makes sense. Yeah. So the rest of this issue is all about Tony and Emma and Phelan. And this is the moment when Emma, in disguise as Hazel, loses patience and says, no, I'm going to take off my hide my powers ring and I'm going to go murder Phelan to death. And, and Tony can't have this because Phelan has information Tony needs. And if he's dead, that information goes proof. That's kind of mm-hmm. Phelong's insurance policy. Mm-hmm. Now, next is a rerun of the bit we saw in X-Men 26, but now with added context. Duggan reuses his dialogue here. and you know, Why not? It's a different perspective, but the same scene. And we see Tony get kneed in the crotch again. We see him on the floor picking up the ring again. And we see Phelong walk in and see Tony offering the ring to Hazel again. So the I guess we gotta pretend to get engaged thing happens again, along with a kiss that both of them fake enjoying. Well, I mean, Emma fakes it. I think Tony might actually be having a good time. Although I'm sure his, his balls are still aching from that knee he just took. So maybe not that great a time. So off to Vegas. Uh, and pre-wedding, we see Tony in the Mark Nil armor, which is showing up all over the place. He steals a fabricating machine from a secret Vegas area lab owned by Zeke Stain. And Tony hands his machine over to a comically poorly disguised Deadpool, which made me laugh. He's, he's, he's playing old Deadpool with a fake mustache on top of his mask and a trucker hat. Wonderful. That's Deadpool. That's enough Deadpool to make me laugh without wearing out his welcome. Yes. And Deadpool is going to take this machine to the X-Men in the Morlock Tunnels. And I guess we'll see what that's for in either the next X-Men issue or the next Iron Man issue, or maybe both because they're kind of one series now written by the same guy. Okay, wedding chapel, off to the fake wedding at the very classy Gamble of Love 24-hour wedding chapel. 
with the uh, slot machine sign out front. You know, real faith that it's going to be a, a long-term relationship here. The bride and groom both choose to wear red. Yeah. Okay, sure. Uh, besides the officiant, the only other attendee is Fei Long. Now, was, was Fei Long invited to this wedding? No, they, they use kind of mind tricks with him. Right. So, Not like Emma's psychic mind tricks, like reverse psychology. You can't yeah. come to our wedding, yeah. which is going to be in Vegas kind of mind tricks. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. He knew that Fei Long would do whatever he told him not to do. And so <laughs> when he was talking about Fei Long, about how oh, I've turned over a new leaf and realized the superhero thing was not for me. So thank you. Um, Fei Long's like, oh, and you're going to get married? And he's like, yeah, important. A development in my life, but please don't come, right? That's how they <laughs> it's know. It's like a, a Bugs Bunny thing, right? Oh, yeah. don't do that. You wouldn't do that, would you? And of yeah. course he does. Uh, and with such a lack of witnesses around, now Emma feels free to take off her power ring, or power inhibiting ring, and rummage around in Fei Long's mind for Tony's precious information. And she finds it. So first, Tony gets the schematics for the Stark Sentinels, but that's not even the interesting bit. Uh, back in issue five of the series... Fei Long found some films made by Howard Stark and meant for Tony's eyes only. It never really made sense why Tony didn't find them, but again, it's fine. In those films, Howard spoke of this crazy, weird medley he had learned of, one existing outside the normal universe. And, and Ruben, when we read it, we both said, yeah, that sounds a lot like Mysterium. Yes. And when Emma sees it, she says, oh yeah, that's, that's got to be Mysterium. So good to see that confirmed. Then Emma erases Fei Long's memory of this incident, identity crisis style, and they all return to physical reality to finish up the fake wedding. So are they really married? Like, legally, you think? I mean, is anyone that goes to Vegas between our wedding chapel married? I, I don't know. I got married in the church. I don't, I don't know how this Vegas stuff works. I think they are. I think he's married to Hazel, right? But she's not oh, a real person. Right. He's, well, but if she didn't sign a real name, it, plenty of loopholes. That's Yeah, cool. I'm pretty sure she didn't sign it, Emma Frost. That would kind of... <laughs> So yes. after the ceremony, uh, which may or may not be legal, uh, the happy fake couple drive off and Emma tells Tony a little more about Mysterium. She even has a chunk of it in the form of her ex-pendant. Yeah. And Tony wants a lot more of it, which seems to be the next item of business for this story. Yeah, I have a feeling he's going to end up in a Mysterium suit of armor. That is what I think is going to happen to him. I mean, he's, he's, cool. he's Tony Stark. He makes armor suits, right? It's, <laughs> it's what he does. He sees a new thing. Oh, I could make that in a suit of armor. Yes. I could make that in a suit of armor. Yeah. It's like a, when I, when I, it's stereotyped that when you first get into home brewing, you know, making beer and stuff at home, everything you see in the supermarket, you think, oh, I could make a beer out of that. I, I could ferment that. I could make a beer. But he's, yeah, he makes suits of armor. So, hooray. I finally had fun with an issue this week. And Duggan knows these characters' voices really well. I mean, he's changed Tony's character a bit, but in a way that I like, that makes sense. Tony and Emma make a great couple, but only the sense that they make an absolutely awful couple. And yes. it's just so much fun to see them together. Very entertaining. Yes. And we got a little bit more on Fei Long. We didn't cover that, so they kind of do his yeah, work. Yes. So it turns out he's the son of mutants. Like yes, a mutant family. A cool idea. And he didn't get any mutant powers. And apparently they were, they treated him quite well. So <laughs> he's really just a spoiled asshole who <laughs> is pissed that he didn't inherit the powers that his parents yeah, had. That, that's an okay way to, to say, oh, this is why he's, you know, so anti-mutant. We'll take yeah. it. That's fine. I'm always happy with irredeemable villains. Like, I don't need him to have like a sensitive side that justifies why he right, does what he, he does. He's doing this all to make money so that he can have an operation for his sick child. Yeah. Which, you know, it can be an okay thing, and that is a, a Flint Marco thing. That's probably why it 
popped into my head. But, you know, it's good to have some villains who are just a-holes. And that's him. Uh, I, I was kind of annoyed when we first heard, oh, Tony Stark is going to get married to Emma. It felt like a gimmick. It felt like, oh, we're just doing this to sell books. But the fact that it all turns out to be, even in the books, a gimmick and a hoax, Yeah, I, I like that. It, it entertains me. Yeah, it's good. I, I was with you. I thought it was sort of stupid, and it didn't seem like it was building towards that. So I was like, really? These characters are going <laughs> to... Yeah, it, it didn't build towards it. It just was a thing that meant it had to happen, and, and here we are. And that was fun. I like how Duggan is resolving some old plot threads. You know, not resolving, but picking back up, like the Living Laser and like the Howard Stark films, and also you know, seeding new ones, like this fabricating machine that's going to be sent to the X Men. Yeah, again, we're going to see him make some Mysterium armor, and somebody's going to make a figurine out of that. Probably a Todd McFarlane one that's going to sell for five hundred dollars. You know. <laughs> This is this is what happens in the books, and I'm okay with that. Well, at least we'll get something out of Mysterium, right? They introduced it. It was supposed to be this big currency that mm-hmm. had cosmic impact, right? Like stabilizing the space currency. The whole economy so, of the entire galaxy was yeah, resting it just on it. Like, yeah. Never really got used, so this is a little more understandable, right? Some new indestructible material that's going to be in a badass Iron Man And I can't imagine that this was the plan for Mysterium when it was invented, but it's nice to see Duggan making use of something and saying, okay, I'm going to pick this idea up and run with it. So I like that. So I haven't talked enough about art in this episode. I don't want to break my New Year's resolution to give the artists all the credit they deserve. Now, I often complain about faces, like I complained about them in the Gene Gray review earlier, usually in like the less action-y scenes. And Juan Forgeri's art does not have this problem. His faces look great in every panel. The, the character is always doing something with their face, right? It doesn't just sit there. They're all scowling or laughing or like Tony in one panel puts on this intentionally fake smile where the eyes are darting around in, in fear and anticipation. And it seems like a small thing, but this acting he puts into the characters does so much to bring every last panel of the book to life. And it, it's really fantastic. One of my current favorite Marvel artists. Do you, do you you enjoy that as well? Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was good. So between the, the fun story that makes me want more and the great art that makes me want to go back through this issue again, I can give Invisible Iron Man number 10 no less than an, oh, I'm going to go 8.5 out of 10. Oh, I'm wow. just so excited to have a book I like. Wow. Am, am yeah. I going too high here? I think a little too high, but it was an 8. I mean, this is definitely one you got to read. This is... Again, if you're trying to like keep tabs on you know important developments since the gala, this is one you would be wrong to miss. Absolutely, get this book if if no other book this week. Definitely get Iron Man number ten. So, are we done? Yeah, that's it. O- almost, almost. Now, now, oh, listeners, no. <laughs> before we go, I do want to briefly mention this week's X Men Unlimited Infinity comic. Is this the uh, real one that you have to read? The must read story. Oh, well, <laughs> I know I'm. Understand, you didn't read this one, so let me tell you a little bit about it. See if I can whet your appetite. It's this is the thing that's available on the Marvel Unlimited app, and we usually don't talk about these because this is where X Men Green happened, and that was nonsense, and they're usually kind of nonsense. But this week's is a little more substantial nonsense than usual. This is X Men Unlimited Infinity Comic Number One Hundred and Six: The Red Root Saga Part One. Now, One Hundred and Six. That's that's, that's a pretty high number, right? But remember, this is a weekly comic, usually very weekly. Now, it's written by Steve Fox, who's writing... Yes, I did have Rimshot written into my script. Written by Steve Fox, who's writing Dark X-Men, 
and Steve Orlando, who wrote that Marauders volume that, that we skipped, art by Lynn Yoshi, which is a name I don't recognize. This is a story that's meant to be read on your phone. That's how it's created. It's not meant to be ever printed out. Some of them get printed out. You don't even want to read it on a big tablet. Read it on your phone because at that size, the art looks okay. Any bigger, it starts to look less okay. And I don't know if it's just me or my my devices, but the scrolling is not smooth. Other comic apps have smooth scrolling, smooth scrolling, and this is supposed to be like an infinite strip. There's no real page, page, page. So I don't know if Marvel's software is bad or my tech is bad, but it's it's way too jumpy. This issue picks up a plot thread from way back in X of Tens. And that was teased at the end of the more recent X-Men number 24. That is, what to do about Red Root the Forest, the Iraqi mutant who is more or less their equivalent of Doug Ramsey, the mutant who can communicate with Araco itself. Now, she's been trapped in Otherworld, in Mad Jim Jasper's Crooked Market, because of some contrived, you break it, you bought it kind of rule during the tournament. You, you remember when they did that, right? Yes. How he got kind of pulled into some yep. container and just locked away. Yep. Now, why go back to this now? Probably because this whole era's come to the end, and they realized, oh, hey, we never went back and got Red Root, so we got to do it now. Magic transports Shiro to the markets. And so I guess this takes place before she got zapped by Dr. Stasis. Don't think about it too hard. And he goes on the start of a, a bit of an adventure. He's there looking for Red Root. And it's it's not a, a great story, but it's passable, especially since it comes, you know, quote, unquote, free with the service I'm already paying for it. If you're already paying for it too, hey, you might as well read it. Maybe if you're standing in line in the supermarket, pull out your phone, fire up the app, read a little X-Men. Is that the, the most ringing endorsement ever? Not really. But, you know, this is, I'm not going to give it a score. It's not really co comparable to a full issue. It's a thing that's going on. I think the whole saga is going to be maybe something we can compare to a full issue. And if anything substantive happens on this adventure, you know, I'll let you know about it on the podcast. Now, speaking of things you'll hear about on this podcast, it's time to talk about next week's books. I'm pretty excited for next week. This week was, other than Iron Man, kind of a bust. But next we have X-Men number 27, where it looks like we'll be checking in on Cyclops, who's Orcus captive at the moment. We've got Immortal X-Men number 16, with the big guy himself on the cover. That's Apocalypse. Uh, I, I said before that covers are lies, but I hope Apocalypse is actually in this issue. And while I don't know why he's be showing up here rather than... In red, kind of dying to find out. Uh, we also have X-Force number 45, where last issue was mostly about Domino and Sage trying to rescue the rest of their team. This issue looks to be more focused on those captive team members trying to break out. We also have, and this is not technically an X-Book, it's God's number one, uh, Jonathan Hickman's new thing, which I hope makes more sense than the whole Ultimate Universe bit. And I'm not yeah. sure if Jim will be doing this on the main Marvel podcast, but I know, Ruben, you and I are both going to read this, so we'll, we'll definitely at least mention it, and, and maybe we'll give it a full review depending on where else it's discussed and what else we have to talk about. That sound good? Yeah, that's the book I'm most interested in next week, but a lot of those books sound good. Some good books, high hopes, some heavy hitters there. Now, I, I do have some recommended reading for you all. A, a few issues written by another heavy hitter, one Chris Claremont. And uh, yeah, this is the stuff that comes out of that Gene Gray book. This is X-Men number 100 and 101 from 1976, and classic X-Men number 8 from 1987, which is the Gene Phoenix story that gets the what-if treatment from, from that book this week. So you might as well go back and read those. They're classic Gene Gray stories. If you haven't read them in a while, or if you've never read them, go check them out on Unlimited. Now, now Ruben, 
after our dear listeners complete their recommended reading, do you have any suggestion what else they might do with their precious, precious time? Yeah, well, I would read more X-Men comics, obviously. 